Well, we are in this series in Philippians uh, that we've entitled Embrace Joy, and we've actually been in this now. This is the 15th message. Can you believe that? Um, And we are in chapter 4. We're doing just two verses this morning, so I'm not going to invite you to stand. You can stand in your heart if you'd like, in your mind. Um, But Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3, Paul writes, I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, suppose your life was summed up in one word or one sentence. What would you want that one word to be? or that one sentence to be? How do you want history to remember you? Uh, in the words of that old pizza commercial, what, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, it's kind of ironic as you read these two verses that there's this guy Clement who's named here, and he goes down in history as a peacemaker. Um, What the entire world remembers about Euodia and Syntyche is that they were peace breakers. Kind of a bummer. You know, Thomas was remembered as a doubter, and um, certain things get attached. Uh, I've titled this sermon 4G, the reason for which you'll learn about in a moment. But I thought an appropriate alternate title might be, Help These Women. But it sounded kind of sexist, and, well, you know... (laughs) But look at verse 1 again with me. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Two women in conflict. Two believers in conflict. And if you've been paying attention over these 15 weeks, you might be asking yourself right now whether it's possible that the conflict between these two women may actually have been the source of the disunity that had begun to pervade the church at Philippi, and which has concerned Paul throughout this letter, whether this whole letter actually pivots on the conflict between these two women. And there are two primary indicators that that suggest that this may have been precisely the case. And first of all, consider this, that the consider the unusual tactic of calling the women by name in a letter that's going to be read to the entire congregation. It suggests that Paul considered the conflict between these two women, first of all, to be unusually significant, that it was secondly already known to the entire church, and that it had the potential to infect the entire church. And it was therefore the responsibility of the entire church. Secondly, the phrase in verse 1 that's translated agree is nearly identical to the one that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2, where where he urged the entire church to be of one mind. You may, may not remember that, but that word implies oneness in both heart and mind, or what we deeply feel, what we think. Um. And that kind of, arriving at that point, unity in what we feel and what we think is incredibly hard work, especially if our starting point is conflict. 
It's not a superficial agreement that Paul's after here. Uh, it's not just dropping the matter. It's, it's, uh, not agreeing to disagree. You hear that a lot. Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree and we move on and we never ever really address the issue. Paul wanted Euodia and Syntyche to put into practice toward one another the mindset that he described earlier in chapter 2, 1 to 4, where he wrote, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, now here's that word, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now I want to suggest to you this morning that very few of us think of this kind of agreement in both heart and mind as a goal when we're in conflict. Uh, very few of us ever get there because very few of us ever really think, well, that's, a, first of all, a desirable goal, or secondly, an attainable goal. The manner in which Paul delivers this exhortation, I think, is as significant as the content of the exhortation itself. Notice with me how he addresses Euodia and Syntyche. First of all, he addresses them equally. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. He repeats the verb, kind of an awkward sentence. He doesn't say, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche. I says, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. He doesn't insert himself into their conflict. He's not a third party to the conflict. He doesn't take sides. Instead, he, he puts the full responsibility on each of them equally to come to agreement in the Lord. Secondly, Paul asks for help here from a third party. We don't know his name. Paul calls him true companion. Other translations render it more literally true yoke fellow. That word true there means legitimate. It means authentic. It means genuine. It means the real deal. The idea is that he was someone that Paul knew and trusted. And that word companion or yoke fellow just means teammate, partner, colleague, someone that, that Paul worked closely beside. He had apparently determined, Paul had, that, that the nature of the conflict between these two women was of such significance and was so potentially destructive uh, to the unity of the church that he felt it necessary, in this case, to call in a third party to mediate. And that the unity of the church was was too important to consider the dispute a private matter to be left to the, to be settled by the women alone. Commenting on this, uh, British theologian William Barclay wrote, It is significant that when there was a quarrel at Philippi, Paul mobilized the resources of the whole church to mend it. He thought no effort too great to maintain the peace of the church. A quarreling church, this is an incredible statement, a quarreling church is no church at all, for it is one from which Christ has been shut out. 
You think about that. If, if we in, when we are in conflict with each other as believers, if our goal is not to achieve a significant measure of reconciliation, if our goal is not to, uh, to achieve at least something approximating oneness in heart and mind, then perhaps we're shutting Christ out of the deal entirely. And that wouldn't surprise me. I, I know there have been times when I've been in conflict with someone and I'm just going, I don't care what God wants. You know, I, I just don't care what God wants. I, I, I know what I want. I'm angry. I'm upset. Quarreling church is no church at all, for it is one from which Christ has been shut out. Third, Paul expresses high value here. He says of Euodia and Syntyche that they had labored side by side with me, with Paul, in the gospel. So here are two women whom Paul knew personally. They weren't just names without faces. These were two women that Paul knew personally, whom he thought of as teammates in the work of advancing the message of the gospel, uh, people whom he loved and cared about. But Paul also understood, this is something for us to really take to heart, Paul understood that Euodia and Syntyche would never bring their dispute to an end by purely human will or human resource. And so he adds the qualification that their agreement ought to be in the Lord. Say that with me, in the Lord. If each of them was willing to submit their attitudes, their thoughts, to the scrutiny of Christ, to lift those things up before the Lord and say, Lord, would you just inspect this? <laughs> would, you, would you search my heart? Would you search my mind? Tell me what you think. Tell me what you see. If they were willing to do that and they were allow him to speak into their hearts and minds, their disharmony would be 90% of the way to resolution. By the way, that phrase, in the Lord, is a favorite of Paul's, isn't it? Um, He uses it, in fact, eight times in this letter. Ten times he uses the phrase, in Christ Paul understood that the life that he was living and the life that's lived by every believer had to be understood as being lived in Christ. You ever think of that? You ever apply that little phrase to your own life? I'm living this life in the Lord. I'm living this life in Christ. Paul believed that the fact of our being in the Lord ought then to shape our our sense of our core identity and, and therefore to transform the purposes and the desires of our hearts and the conduct of our relationships. In this case, Paul is urging Euodia and Syntyche to seek unity because they are in the Lord. And that because of that core reality, they must not allow their disagreement, whatever it may have been, and we don't know what it was, they must not allow that to poison and disrupt the unity of the fellowship of believers. You know, it's funny the kinds of things that can divide a church. Someone came up to me after the first service and said, I'm going to share this with someone that they knew. Because in their church, they are in in a huge conflict over the wearing of masks. (laughs) 
I thought, I'm not surprised. Because simple things can spread like wildfire and, and, and cause people to take sides and just split the church right down the middle. Well, here's another implication. In Christ and by the Holy Spirit, these two women were equipped to overcome circumstances that unbelievers would be discouraged by. That would disrupt or terminate friendships between people in the world. And Paul wants Euodia and Syntyche to put the, all of the resources of the Holy Spirit, all of the resources of God's Word into practice in their relationship with one another. Same is true for any of us today who are in Christ and by virtue of that fact are members of the community of believers. When we find ourselves in what seems to be an intractable conflict with each other where neither side is willing to yield, that conflict is no longer a matter of private concern. I want you to understand that this morning. If you are in an intractable conflict with another believer, It's no longer just between the two of you. It becomes the concern of the entire church. Paul wrote that we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You remember Jesus said, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you, what? That you love one another. That there is a tangible and observable unity. A tangible and observable unity love between believers that that exceeds the norm so that as people outside the church look at the, the, and I'm not just talking about LifePoint Church, I'm talking about the body of Christ at large as, as they look at how we relate to one another. The love that we have for one another becomes the validation of our claims regarding the gospel, our claims to be disciples of Jesus. So it's appropriate for the church to pursue mediation of of conflict that can't get resolved through mature and gifted men and women who are who are gifted in helping others overcome their differences and to resolve their conflicts. Paul understood that in the Lord conflict provides opportunities. Listen to what he said in his letter to the Corinthians who were in conflict over all kinds of things. I mean, the the sign over the door of the church in Corinth should have read, Conflict R Us, you know, because they were just uh, admired in it. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in, in those four brief verses, Paul points to three major opportunities that conflict provides. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good one. Notice first in 1031, the opportunity to glorify God. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God's glorified whenever we choose to reflect his love and his kindness to those with whom we're experiencing conflict. Next, in verse 33, he he mentions the opportunity to serve our neighbor. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. We're called in Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves and to serve them. Even when we are misunderstood, even when 
they are disappointing us, even when they may be mistreating us, when we choose to respect and actually serve those with whom we are in conflict, unheard of, right? Serving someone with whom you're in conflict. God is honored. Finally, in 11 verse 1, he he mentions that conflict presents the opportunity to become more like Jesus Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The conflict is one of the many tools that God uses to conform us to the image of his son, whether it's working humility in us by reminding us of our own failures, of our own weaknesses, of our own sin, or allowing us to practice love and forgiveness in the face of provocation, in the face of frustration. The Spirit of God will use that to strengthen and refine our character. Remember Romans eight twenty eight to 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among, or in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. When you're engaged in conflict with someone else, how do you proceed in, in your attempts to resolve that conflict? Or do you even try? And how's it working for you? I recently received a letter from uh, a woman who was experiencing conflict with members of her extended family. And, and it, as she shared that with me, she expressed just the, the deep, real pain and anguish of her heart over matters in which she felt she'd been wronged. And she wrote me asking my counsel, how would you have counseled her? Uh, have you ever counseled, uh, ever considered how you would proceed if you were personally called upon uh, to help two believers to re- resolve conflict to the degree that in the end they could be described as having come to agreement, having come to oneness in heart and mind? What I'm about to share with you is what I shared with her in a bit of an expanded form. God's Word provides us with amazingly clear instruction about how you and I are to steward our relationships. And this area of resolving conflict and pursuing reconciliation with one another is no exception. So I want to share with you four basic principles that provide a simple and yet I think, highly effective framework for this important task. Let's call it the the 4G framework. Let's call it that because it sounds cool and a little bit techy and because all the points begin with the letter G. So the first principle is this, that we are called to glorify God. Glorify God. Our first challenge, our first goal, if we are going to be successful in resolving conflict, actually arriving at something as close as possible to oneness in heart and mind, must be that we determine in advance that our goal in whatever conflict we're experiencing will be first and foremost from beginning to end to glorify God. Uh, In answer to the question, who am I hoping will prevail in this present conflict? 
each of us in the flesh will answer, why me, of course, right? Me. It's so easy, isn't it, when we're irritated, when we're angry, when we're feeling threatened to focus on one thing and one thing only, and that is how we're going to win the argument and vindicate ourselves. But when we make the determination in advance that that our goal as we respond to conflict is to glorify God, then our answer to the question will be that I am hoping God will prevail. I'm hoping that God will prevail. That he will prevail in my heart. That he will prevail in my mind. That he will prevail in what I allow to come out of my mouth and in how I conduct myself. Things that I do when I'm angry, when I'm threatened. I can't control the responses of the other parties to a conflict, but I can, in large measure, control my own. Paul wrote in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, notice that, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Unthinkable, right? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, why should we choose a course of action that's as radical as that? And the answer is because it reflects God's radical grace toward each of us in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of who? Of God as beloved children. To imitate God in this case begins with calling to mind that it was while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile toward God, while we were alienated from Him, while we were completely helpless to save ourselves from the predicament of our sin, that Christ chose willingly to go to the cross, to lay down His life, to die the death that, that, should have, that we should have died, to pay the debt that we could never pay. And so Paul wrote to the Colossian Christ followers, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, we can, we can glorify God, we can reflect His grace toward us by asking ourselves one central question in any conflict, and it's this, how can I honor God and conduct myself in a manner that is pleasing to Him in this situation? Second principle is this, that you're going to need to get the log out of your own eye. <laughs> 
So here's an uncomfortable truth. There's hardly ever an occasion of conflict when you and I are completely innocent of wrong attitudes, wrong words, wrong actions. And so our second focus, if we're going to glorify God in the circumstances we're facing, needs to be a focus on ourselves. And this second focus focus isn't about justifying our actions or vindicating ourselves or laying out a strategy to prevail in the conflict. It's all about examining and confessing our own wrongs in the situation. And I think you'll agree with me that this isn't our natural instinctual course of action. What it is, is the radically different approach that Jesus commanded in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not, not, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there's this big old log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And I just say, Ouch, 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 Jesus. Yeah, quit speaking the truth about my life. So when we're willing to take that second step, God will first begin to soften our hearts, won't he? He'll begin to work humility in us by helping us to recognize and to take responsibility for our part in the conflict. And we may discover, to our total surprise, in the process, that the conflict that we are experiencing is more of our own making than of the other person's. And God may just use the occasion to reveal sinful patterns, sinful habits that have embedded themselves in our lives, of which we may have been, up until that point, largely unconscious. Something I've come to understand is that even when I don't consider myself to be the primary instigator of a given conflict, most of the time I discover that I have, in fact, played some part in exacerbating the problem. Or that I'm about to, you know, <laughs> I'm about to. And it's, it's only when I'm willing to come to understand and to own my part in the conflict, to confess it, to seek forgiveness for it, that I'm ready for the next step. When I confess my wrongs, when I seek forgiveness and take meaningful steps to make amends for what I've thought or said or done, or what I haven't said or done that I should have, <laughs> I often also, it also often has a softening effect on the other party to the conflict. If I'm unwilling to get the log out of my own eye, I shouldn't be surprised if the other person or persons remain unyielding in their position. That's why Proverbs 28.13 says, "Whatever, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Well, the third step, then, is to go and show your brother or sister their fault. And some of you are saying, well, I wish you would have started just with that, you know, <laughs> or gotten to it a little sooner. Matthew eighteen fifteen: if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You know, there are basically 
two kinds of responses when it comes to confronting conflict or responding to it. There is fight and there's flight, right? Some people enjoy getting in the face of their opponent and, you know, sharing a piece of their mind they can ill afford to lose. Others want to avoid confrontation altogether. And so they flee, either because they fear the reactions of those that, that they would otherwise confront, or they fear their own reactions, their own responses, or they've come to believe that the best thing is to give people space and let them do their own thing, no matter how hurtful or how sinful their actions have been. And let me just suggest to you that both of those extremes represent a failure to love. They both represent a failure to love. There's one alternative to either of the extremes, and that is to consider whether you can overlook an offense. Often we can simply forgive an offense and let it go. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. I think the Apostle Peter may have had Proverbs 19.11 in mind when he wrote, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers, covers a multitude of sins. Well, how do you decide whether overlooking an offense isn't actually mere avoidance of conflict. Now, I don't have time to develop this, mor- this this morning, but generally speaking, if you're taking notes, just you might want to write these down. Generally speaking, an offense may be minor enough to be passed over if, number one, it, it hasn't seriously dishonored God and his reputation. Secondly, if it hasn't permanently damaged your relationship. Third, if it isn't hurting the offender. And fourth, if it isn't hurting others, whether directly or indirectly. Now look again at what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is a one-on-one. This is mano a mano. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Remember now, you've determined to glorify God in the conflict. You've taken the time to do a deep personal assessment. You've been careful to remove the log from your own eye through humble confession and repentance, not just kind of, but really dealing with that. Repentance of your part in the conflict. And up until then, you weren't prepared for the third step. But now you go and you address your brother or sister about their offense. And again, this is private, one-to-one conversation between the two of you. And it requires, at least in my experience, it requires that you bring every ounce of relational intelligence and sensitivity that you can muster. Now notice the second sentence. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You cannot control how the other person will respond. 
can only control how you conduct yourself. Jesus goes on in the next verses to say that in the case of a conflict with a Christian brother or sister, if he or she is unwilling to listen, then the larger church community may be called upon, just as Paul was calling upon the church in Philippi to do in the case of Euodia and Syntyche. The fourth step is this, to go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. When we're willing to follow God's wisdom for resolution of conflict and we're we're willing to follow that through to culmination, the result will be, hopefully, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a beautiful word. You think about reconciliation between a husband and wife when uh, when their marriage is broken and maybe they've actually gone through separation or actual divorce and they're somehow able now to be reconciled and, and restore their marriage. Think about reconciliation between parents and children, between friends who have been alienated from each other. And we love the thought of reconciliation. We love uh, the the moment and the 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 fact of re- reconciliation because it represents restoration. And, and we, we love it because deep down in the core of our being, whether we have acknowledged it or not, we long, all of us, long for reconciliation with God, reconciliation with ourselves, reconciliation with our spouses and our families, and with so many others. Reconciliation is what God accomplished at an incalculably great price through the death of his son, Christ. Paul wrote that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is all gospel all of it from first to last. It's, it's applied gospel. What God in turn wants from us most as those whom he has reconciled to himself is that we be reconciled to one another. He, he has entrusted to us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Because he's forgiven us all of our sins, he expects us, he asks us, he commands us to forgive others. Well, in closing, I want to just say a few words about forgiveness. And again, I don't have time to develop all this, and so this is in somewhat bulleted form. But here's what forgiveness, first of all, is not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. How how many of you know this in your own experience, that if you wait to feel forgiveness, you'll never forgive? Right? I mean, there are some hurts that are so deep that if I wait to feel like forgiving, I never will. So it's not a feeling. Secondly, forgiving is not forgetting. I mean, even God doesn't passively forget our sins. That's not what the Bible says. The promise of Scripture is that he will actively choose not to remember them. And that's the distinction. God doesn't forget. He actively chooses not to remember, not to recall them to mind. Third, forgiving is not excusing. 
It's not saying, well, that's okay, when it's not okay at all. Oh, it's not a big deal, when in fact it is a big deal. The very fact that forgiveness is needed indicates that a real offense has taken place. Amen? Isn't that true? If, if something needs to be forgiven, there's, a, there's been an offense that has taken place. Fourth, forgiveness is not temporary. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to fully and freely pardon the one who has offended us and then releasing their debt. Releasing their debt. Forgiveness is a choice to open the door to a renewed relationship. It's not a feeling. It's not forgetting. It's not excusing. It's not temporary. It is a conscious choice to open the door to a new, renewed relationship. Let me close with four concrete promises that reflect genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. And by the way, these are from a book titled The Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sandy. And if you haven't read the book, I would commend it to your reading. Four concrete promises. First of all, I will not rehearse this incident in my mind and heart. I will not rehearse this incident in my mind and heart. If you live very long, you're going to get hurt. Do you agree with that? People are going to hurt you. And and I, like maybe probably most of you, have some, there have been some people in my life who have hurt me deeply. And if I allow myself to rehearse those incidents, guess what happens? All of those feelings come flooding back. Have you had that experience? I mean, it's like you're right back in the same situation over again. So if, so the promise, first of all, is I will not rehearse this incident in my mind and heart because my goal is to, to have opened the door to a renewed relationship. So I'm not going to go back there. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'm not, I'm, it's over. I, I am, and again, it's a choice. I am choosing not to bring up the incident again and not ever to use it against you. Hard work, wouldn't you say? That. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. <laughs> and, and isn't that our, just our desire so often, right? Because we want to vindicate ourselves and we want other people to affirm us and and, and, and we just spread the infection when we do that. Fourth, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our ongoing personal relationship. See, I often say it takes a high, much higher level of moral intelligence to, to follow Jesus than to not. Would you agree with that? Hard work. Glorify God, get the log out, go and show your brother his fault, go and be reconciled. Now, here's what I'm pretty sure of, that uh, as you've been listening to this, you've been thinking about a situation or situations in your own life. I hope you have. Uh, if, if there's nothing going on right now, God bless you. That's, that's great. <laughs> it's coming, though. 
And, and it's happened in the past. Glorify God, get the log out, go and show your brother his fault, go and be reconciled. If you would like someone to pray with you today, in a non-gossipy kind of way, we'd be happy to pray with you. If you don't know Christ today, and you would like to experience God's forgiveness in your life, we'd love to help you understand how you can receive that forgiveness and that reconciliation and that restoration of relationship with God. If you'd like to be baptized, we're going to do that soon. We're going to have a baptismal service soon. If you'd like to be baptized, we, uh, please let us know that. If you'd like to join our church, please let us know that. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you that your word speaks so clearly, so incisively into the, the details of our hearts and minds and relationships. Uh, Lord, we're humbled by it because uh, we're exposed by it. But Lord, we want to take seriously your command to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And we have been the recipients of unheard of grace, unheard of mercy, unbelievable kindness. And so, Lord, show us our sin that we would be humble and show us your grace that we would love and we would forgive others in our own lives and so reflect your character that you are producing in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.